Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. The padlock on West Michigan's chastity belt. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, my name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean, Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Um, I deserve credit for that padlock thing. You, that's that's why we let you say it. Oh, okay. It was, it yeah, but was, I want yeah. verbal credit. Yes. Thank you, Luke, for coming up with that very uh, clever line. Uh, we're going to start off this week uh, because it wasn't enough that us namby-pamby liberals won the election. Now we get to complain about it. Woohoo! Yeah. So starting off uh, this week with our shit list, it's a listener recommended shit list. We may a listener recommended shit list. And I wish I had written down what listener recommended it. But thanks to you Uh, is President Obama. President Obama has created a faith based office with a wide mission. Well, he's continuing the faith based. office. He's continuing it, but he's he's expanding, expanding it. It was bad enough that we had this before under uh, the reign of King George. But Now, before oh, we blast man. him, we should say the expansion of the faith-based programs, I don't think all of it would be things that, that would get him on the shit list. For example, part of the expansion is to recognize that secular Woo-hoo. charities and everything else should be right. getting these funds yes. as well. And that they shouldn't – he says they shouldn't discriminate in hiring practices if they take government money yeah. and so, separate their proselytization wings from their – Charity wings. So it actually is making uh, many of the changes that um, it's making the faith-based initiative better, but it's still it's that still damn faith-based faith-based initiative. initiative. I, I wish they could even just call it something different, especially when you're including secular uh, groups in it. If the idea is to give money to groups that are doing good things, ditch the faith-based. I think label. he did. He changed the he called it faith-based and what community. White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Yeah, and neighborhood partnerships. I don't even know where to start with it. There's a force for good greater than government, he said. Yeah, and that change that Americans are looking for will not come from government alone. I agree with that, but so what? So, okay, it's we're in hard economic times. Churches and church-based charities do a lot of good in helping to take care of the poor and all that. Yep. No disagreement here. Yeah. However... Are we not establishing religion? Are we not violating the Establishment Clause by giving charitable monies to churches to do this work? Here's my question. How much of this do you think is really that's what he thinks because he's a sincere believer? And how much of his political expediency that he wants to keep religious people moderates on board with his – I would say 95% is the latter. And and I I don't doubt his personal faith. I do believe he is – well, most of the time, I believe he actually is a, a religious man, but but I think this is a political move. Maybe, but uh, you know the the fact is you shouldn't have to cave 
to political expediency to do some of these policies. And, I mean, he's going to have to be a compromiser. And you think but, the election of Barack Obama is pretty good evidence that the the religious right does not have um, the country in a half Nelson here, okay? It's not very popular him closing down Gitmo, but he's doing it because it's unconstitutional. Right. And arguably this is the, the same way. I heard a great example of how this could go wrong just last night. My my wife is in a band, and they do a lot of uh, audience involvement, teaching people to drum, and they were requested to play at this class. It was a class for people who are getting divorced, and if they are getting divorced after some sort of traumatic incident, mm-hmm. the state requires them to take a class first to deal with trauma and everything to make sure that they're getting divorced for the right reasons. Yeah, I'm not sure I like that, but okay. Yeah, well, this class uh, that she was playing at, I don't know what drumming has to do with mm. with trauma or any of that, but uh, but they were they were playing at this class, and it was held in a Catholic church. Yeah. Now, are you telling me there's not going to be any pressure for divorcees? Last time I checked, the Catholics weren't too not in big support fans. of divorce programs. Uh, I believe there was a schism about that a few years back. Or Michigan ACLU uh, had yeah. a had a case not too long ago where, I think it was last year, where a gentleman who was a Catholic was taking a drug rehab program, court-mandated yes, drug rehab absolutely. program, at a Protestant church where, of course, they believed that Catholics were of the devil. Yep. And uh, they wouldn't let him bring in his his rosary. They wouldn't let mm-hmm. him pray Catholic prayers. And uh, the ACLU successfully had a lawsuit. But if you're going to embed social services in local churches, you are going to get but theology right. looking over into it. You're you're never just the context alone mm-hmm. is is going to have some sort of effect. I hate the fact that I have to go vote in a church. But and but you have to think practically. These buildings are there. Yeah, uh, but there's schools that they can find there. I, I, schools, libraries. So I live across the street from the from the Catholic church, and that's where I had to go vote. And in the yep, gymnasium, well, I, that you go in, there was religious messages on the wall yep. that say that whatever. And there's and I went and looked up, and there's documented there's scientific evidence that that sort of thing results in priming of concepts. Absolutely. And there's a slight relationship between voting on things like religious issues as opposed to. Right. So other anyone things. who's going in as an undecided voter has these. Yeah, influences. They're going to vote on on a on a proposal on stem cells or something like that. That religious priming could make a difference, right? Uh, and, and my one other issue with this office that uh, Obama has created, he appointed Joshua Dubois or Dubois, if you're French, and, and I'm hoping this is a typo. A 26 year old Pentecostal minister. It's not a typo. He's 26 years old. He's a 26-year-old Pentecostal minister who is running this White House office of faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. It's bad, is, but a lot of those, a lot of the Bush appointees were these people that came out of like Liberty University that were right. really oh, young, yeah. the no, young no, no, Turks no. that were selected for ideological. It's just I expect I expect better from from an Obama administration. He, um, this Joshua Dubois or Dubois um, was the religious outreach. Um, head for Obama's Senate office and his presidential campaign. So it's someone he's worked with before, but it's a kid. Well, I, I, don't, I, I don't think we want to, I mean, if he's got qualifications despite his age. Hey, he's uh, Pentecostal, so he's in well, direct, you know, contact with... And that's the other thing, uh, is his age is... is I mean, yeah, is I'm detecting Sarah Grapes here, Dave. Uh, 
Sour grapes, baby. I wanted that job. Damn you, Joshua. Can you imagine that? Damn the director you. of Obama's face based Dave Fletcher. Uh, See, we're going to shut nope. down the offices tomorrow. That <laughs> be an easy job. Um, regardless, the office needs to go. That's right. Yeah, I feel kind of bad. Uh, we never did put George Bush on the shit list. And Obama's been on there twice now. It's yeah. too, too We easy. never put George Bush on I the shit list? I think we just kind of assumed it was just George Bush was on the shit list. Yeah. All right. Well, we've uh, we've been put on the shit list. Yeah. But yes. by a number of... By uh, a number of our listeners. <laughs> Let's actually... Let's start off a, a little softball here. Uh, our last, or on episode 32, we offered up our very own Dr. Professor Luke Galen's presentation to Center for Inquiry Michigan. And we're going to share some of the responses that people have posted on the blog there before we get into the heavy-duty uh, mm-hmm. shit listing of ourselves. Uh, this first one comes from N.H. Baritone. Do you know what you're talking about? That's my response. Next. He or she says, great lecture. I listened while viewing the charts, which I'm sure enhanced the experience. Yeah, nice PowerPoint. That's why I have them. Bad background color, but okay. Uh, Are there any plans? That was one of the most aesthetically disgusting PowerPoints I've ever seen. I thought the presentation was great. The data was interesting, but my God, I need help with the PowerPoints, man. Just a constructive criticism. Just, oh, I'll just do the black and white. Would that please you if I just stuck with white background? That would be better than, what was it, Everyone olive and red? Yeah, yeah. I'll talk in a, in a droning Benstein voice on the next slide. You can see the and correlation between It was like, it was like blah, pimento blah. text on a green olive. That That's was, right. Yeah. So screw me for being trying to be adventurous. Yeah, okay. I just shouldn't have to look at your data and feel nausea. You're welcome to come over and you can work at it with me. It's it's really easy to change. The, anyway, we're, we're getting off topic here. Mm-hmm. Uh NH Baritone writes, are there any plans to compare the CFI international data that you have collected here with a data set or data set collected from religious believers, even if you choose only one group, such as one denomination or one religious interest group? Thanks for posting it to the podcast. Jeff Seaver and I, the director, were trying to uh, post the survey to get a religious group that was as large as possible. And that was the sticking point is that we couldn't find sufficiently large numbers uh, and we even posted on BeliefNet, um, right. but a lot of people on the BeliefNet are not, you know, religious, and we only got like a dozen of those anyway. So Jeez. really, that the big, the biggest breakthrough came when my assistant Jim Clote had had managed to talk to people at the local churches and got their responses. And uh, so it's very difficult to get a representative sample than of believers. For so we them. have you, you had a easier time getting a large sample of non-believers than you are getting an equally large sample of believers. Because we told them, yes, we told them that it was you know that the survey we wanted non-religious people, and so everybody sent it to everybody else they knew in groups like ours and everything. Sure. Whereas, we, what's the motivation for a religious person yeah. to take a non-religious identification survey? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Jason writes question. Did the study address people who were non-theistic but practiced a spiritual system, such as Buddhism or Taoism, or is that even relevant? Yeah, some of the people there uh, in the survey were allowed to list a uh, a denomination. So many people, sure. uh, for example, that consider themselves non-religious, non-theists, also maybe attend services or align with something like Buddhism. I think some of the groups there were, like Buddhism, for example, was like 6% of the total um, non-religious sample also said that they 
uh, aligned with Buddhism. There's also some Catholics, which, as you imagine, is more kind of a, a label for some people. They might go to Catholic services. So I haven't. Right. I have the capability. I guess is my short answer. To, I, we have the capability to look at that. There was it wasn't a huge pro, uh, portion of the sample, but there are people out there who do say that they are, you know, not religious but yet aligned with a spiritual system like that. Okay, so. That's some nice ego stroking for for Luke and uh, good questions. A prophet is never honored in his own hometown, so I'm going to go and shake the dust off my sandals. Yeah, good. Whatever. But now, in episodes 29 and 30, that was our two-parter with the title that Luke uh, gave them, Free Willy versus Determinator, part 22. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Thanks thanks again, Luke. Um, I kind of feel like one of our most groundbreaking set of episodes as far as really challenging our listeners and getting a lot of feedback. And it worked <laughs> it in spades. one of the dumbest <laughs> titles that we've ever chosen. It worked in spades with getting feedback. Uh, that's right. Yes, we got a lot of feedback and um, some of it nice, some of it uh, not so nice. Let's take a look at well, some of what we got in our, our mailbag here. I, I think it's exactly what we predicted, though, not that kind of volume. Uh, a right. response is that that this is an issue that uh, that people on our side are going to debate. Mm-hmm. They're going to come down on different sides, and uh, and we certainly got a lot of that. We got a lot of different sides. Well, I want to say that um, without compromising the determinism at all, mm-hmm. I do think we one one failure of those episodes is that we did not articulate the compatibilist perspective well enough. Mm. As one listener put it, we didn't spend enough time discussing the freedom that we do have. And uh, some of the language we used might have been confusing. The -hmm. first session of the free will determinism episodes, we referred to ourselves as meat puppets, electrified meat. Right. uh, Sometimes said robots. We were using a lot of hyperbole that, that kind of, I think, disguises what our real view is. And in the, in the second episode, we were much clearer about trying to say things like um, your thinking, your ideas, your past behavior, uh, that all those things go into the causal chain. Right. There is something of you in the decisions you make. The, the narrative. We were careful you. to say that those things weren't uncaused, that mm-hmm. they have that they are causally determined, but it is false to think of this as as us just being zombies. I think the reason why we used language like that, meat puppet language, was because in that first episode, we were directly responding to the dualistic view of, of a Christian apologist, which he defined the self and the soul, as many a Cartesian would, as operating in a causal vacuum. And so because we were fighting against that very strong notion of free will, we might have actually overdone it on some of the meat puppet stuff. It's not necessary to say that if you accept determinism, it it doesn't imply that we are just robots. What it means is that we are fully caused individuals. We are fully within the natural laws of the universe. We operate within its bounds. We're not always, we don't always have the causal determinants of our behaviors uh, accessible to our consciousness. We're not always clear on what they are, but that is not quite the same as saying that we are just robots. Here's another email from a Simon uh, from Great Britain. Quite possibly the worst podcast ever. You shouldn't ever get up in front of anyone and do this again. <laughs> Who told you that you were talented? 
one critique was that we couldn't possibly know what we were talking about because, as as the emailer put it, we are philosophers, not scientists. Um, hey, I'm neither. Okay. <laughs> John's email says, you guys are philosophers. Simply put, one can think anything. That doesn't make it objectively true. Science involves hypothesis testing and objective evidence. If you guys believe in using the scientific method for learning and truth, you have to admit some level of uncertainty, which is fine with me, yep. uh, and you will change your mind if sufficient evidence is presented. Mm -hmm. But he keeps on criticizing us because we're not neurologists, because we've brought information from psychology, which he perceives as being a soft science, and that since we don't have any background in neurology per se, that we can't make judgments here. He says, if you haven't learned how your own brain works, you have no business talking about topics that involve neuroscience, such as free will. If you are right, neuroscience is the place to find the answers, not philosophy. Um, can I address that? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, the... I'm sorry, Dr. Galen. Um, it might say Doctor of Philosophy, but it's in psychology. I have a graduate minor in neuropsychology. So um, this whole thing about soft science and hard science crap, that really pisses me off because uh, <laughs> science is science. We use statistical aspects to test things. Uh, you have to take coursework in statistics and probability theory in order to have a, a research degree. And uh, in many ways, soft sciences, if you want to call it that way, of psychology have better statistical training than a lot of the biologists and physicists mm -hmm. that I know. It's just in a different area. Right. Uh, and if you look at uh, as an aside, take, it, for example, religious belief, which we've discussed a lot on this show, is actually lower if you want to think of being more kind of cranky skeptics among many of the social sciences like psychology and such than it is among some disciplines of the quote-unquote hard sciences. Mathema you know, and Mathematicians and physicists are more re religious and superstitious than psychologists and sociologists Easier to line are. those things up. Yeah, because you have yeah. different magisteria sort of arguments. Right. With oh, this is just the laws of the universe. Oh, God did it this way. Whereas I th psychologists have rock-bottom religious belief often uh, because they are, apply their scientific method to their own thinking, which is corrosive mm -hmm. of religious Ooh. beliefs. We, I think on that podcast, we talked about neurological experiments like the, the LeBay and the yeah. cortical stimulation, those things. Sure. sure, we combined it with some armchair stuff like uh, the logic of irrationality of free will and determinism, but we also discuss scientific, and there's tons more where that came from. We could we could go right. on and on about talking about psychology experiments with contextual priming about making manipulations that get people to act a certain way. That's scientific. You have a group, a control group. If if the context gets somebody to act a certain way, you do statistical tests. They're significantly different. What's not mathematical and science about that? Right. He, he seems to be suggesting that if you were to go into the field of neurology, you would see that they, they suddenly have a different take on free will. And, and you're familiar with the literature. You've had some training. I mean, is does that bear itself out? I don't know. I, I are mean, there people in neurology who are actively fighting against the deterministic? Well, only in the sense of in any field, you have a variety of views of things. And in, in the area of free will and determinism, it's particularly definitional. It all hinges yeah. upon what defines, because that's where you get into soft determinism versus hard determinism. Right, 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 right. And I think that there was an article there about, uh, I forget what her name was, but a, a neurologist was blogging about about her <laughs> versions of what controls. But that hinges more on yeah. definitional aspects. Nobody's debating about the science uh, being quality or not. You know, uh, Some soft science isn't really science. That's not the crux of the debate. The crux is what you define as being a form of determinism or, or, or not. 
I don't know a lot of neurologists who say that if you cut your brain stem, you're going to keep walking around in a dualistic way. Right. Yeah. Well, he was referring to Dr. Cam- Dr. Ginger Campbell. Was she on point of inquiry? Yeah, she did a yep. podcast yeah. uh, talking about uh, talking about this and and saying that there should be allowances made for free will. I thought it was funny that he he tried to take us apart on the basis of thinking philosophically about it. But uh, when I looked up this this article uh, here that he's referring to, almost the entire thing was a philosophical argument. In fact, mm-hmm. it wasn't all di- all that different from the one we were making, which was saying we need to reconceptualize the way we think about the self. We need to reject the Cartesian view. Sure. Um, it was really just on a couple matters of specifics, like where should you drown, draw the boundaries of the self, that I think her point differed at all from what we were talking about. Yeah, many many uh, neurologists talk about the self as being like an emergent property of the brain, that the different areas of the sure. brain generate different aspects of self. That's not free will. That's just saying that what we perceive as being ourselves uh, is is a gener- is a subjective experience that's generated by different parts of the brain. That's determinism still. You're still determined. If I were to lop off different parts of your brain like Hannibal Lecter did in that movie gradually yeah, and cut into layers of cortex, you wouldn't suddenly have a drop-off where, oh, I just cut out the self part. It's just that right. your sense of self would, would differ. People like with frontal lobe damage, for example, might perceive yeah. less volitional aspect in their action. They just sit there all day. And we talked about that quite a lot on, on those yeah. two episodes. So that's yeah. not free will. That's just that, that there are, uh, just a definitional aspect of that the self is embodied throughout the brain in different areas. And yeah, she didn't really talk in her article about a lot of data. Oh, what do you know? That's soft science. One of the most challenging emails or blog posts that we came across. And, and we got a lot. And yeah. some of you wrote at length. Yeah, if I didn't read your particular comment, I, I have here a booklet that is in excess of 20 pages or more that are just printed off comments that we've received. Yeah. So, and, and so please don't feel like we're trying to exclude you. I think one of the most difficult challenges we had was posted to the blog, writing anonymously. Chicken. Uh, this person, uh, regarding regarding our talk about determinism and criminal justice, mm. he had yes. two questions. If we're advocating the abandonment of any retributive component of criminal justice, what about the victims? Mm. Says so It sounds pretty cliche, but seriously, what about the victims? If we know with 100% certainty that a criminal will never commit a crime again, should he be freed immediately regardless of the crime committed? So kind of a hypothetical. We're never going to know with 100% certainty. But um, What about the minority report, though? Does it make sense yeah. to we imprison? We need pre-crime. Uh, you know. Well, that was his second question. If someone is predetermined to do crime or violence, should they be incarcerated uh, or otherwise restrained from carrying out their criminal violent acts? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If a society were to recognize that free will doesn't exist, does it owe itself to separate those people who are predisposed to do harm from the rest? Good question. The minority report, as you said. Mm -hmm. What if we find somebody who has an amygdaloid tumor just like the Texas sharpshooter, and he's been manifesting in his journals and other things, talking about wanting to kill people, homicidal thoughts? What do you think, guys? If yeah, we're I mean, talking about justice is protective and rehabilitative. There's ways that you could target people that are at risk for violence. So let's say that we know that there are certain genes or, or, or uh, environments that predispose people to be more at risk for criminals, to be criminals or to uh, be, you know, engage in risk behavior. You could then target them for intervention. Uh, I would not right. say incarcerate. Well, look at Head Start. What is Head Start? 
I, I started to say, saying we, that we kids, recognize this already. Kids that are at risk for being failures academically are targeted to go into classes so they can make up and have a remediation there. Nobody is arguing that that's inhumane in any way. Okay. Yeah. I, I think incarceration... The point would be that incarceration... W- oh, they don't do that? I thought they locked them with the kids in. Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, no. I, w- I, th- I think we would have <laughs> to rule out incarceration simply because we would have to, and our justice system always has, cited on the... On the uh, on the accused and, you know, the, the burden of proof right. is to show that the person is guilty. I, I think we would have to just because we're capable of making mistakes, because we, we may not understand a person and because, you know, the presence of just an amygdaloid tum- tumor is, is, not going to, is not going to do it. We can't say there's that kind of one-to-one correlation with these brain structures and uh, and behavior. Well, the only we, kind we, of prevention we couldn't go so far as incarcerating people yeah. proactively. He he's right. Prevention is the key, but prevention um, by way of introducing these positive determining factors is much better than right. lock them up away from society. If I was trying to do I, when I read that, I tried to put myself in the position of let's say I was a victim. Somebody mugged me and beat me up. And it turned out that he had a amygdaloid tumor, and that's what caused him to do that. And that, if it was 100% certain, right. I wouldn't have any problem with that if they excised the tumor and let him walk okay, off. Okay, but what if someone... Oh, no, now, that's the uh, the victim's question. Yeah, but, yeah, but what if someone murdered your... Jeremy, your wife was murdered, and and it, we had 100% certainty that the person who murdered her would never do it again, would never um, commit another crime. As a hypothetical. As a hypothetical. Would you say, all right, then then let him go. I don't need that retribution. Well, uh, I think my emotions to this to this are irrelevant, quite frankly. Uh, well, and that's and I think maybe that's the maybe key to I would question. maybe I would feel furious. Uh, maybe I would feel that justice hadn't been done. But if we're accepting the premise yes. of the question that we would know with 100 percent certainty that it it wouldn't ever happen again, I, I don't think my emotional trauma would be enough to keep that person incarcerated. And I think that's why why we have a social I structure now, I would, in place. I would say one argument, though, that could still be operating there is, um, is uh, the deterrent to other crimes in right. society. One does need to make account of, if, if we did just start letting people off the hook... Because uh, we and, knew they were going to do anything out, else. Yeah, would it be an effective... Uh, deterrent would people then modify yeah. their behavior and and actually do crime that they might otherwise not have exactly so you would have to take that into account you have to uh, with so much of this we have to stop looking at the individual and think about the social aspect of of determinant and as far as the victim thing goes uh, i I tend to be utilitarian in my ethical thinking. Yeah, me too. So my my test of whether or not, not this would be moral would be can compare what I gain out of the satisfaction of knowing that person is incarcerated or with the killed. interests of that person in actually being incarcerated or executed or whatever. Right. First of all, I'd like to see data to show that grief is quelled that mu- that grief can be it's not treated. I, I've seen some interesting by punishing others. I I, I seriously doubt it would yeah. work out that way. And whatever whatever mere satisfaction I could get could not possibly amount to the interests that somebody else would have in, in being free. Yeah. That being said, it's unlikely that anybody would commit a murder and then be we could have one hundred percent certainty right. that's not gonna happen again. Right, right. So 
So we're all we're talking about hypotheticals here. But it's an important but interesting question, one, so and I'm yeah, glad that they brought it that's up. That's why they have minority report. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Wow. Luke knows his Tom Cruise movies. That's scary. I think a lot of the comments, well, if there's one general theme, one of the general themes was many people try to do a um, like an indeterminism thing, and they mention things like quantum mechanics. Yeah, there were a lot of attempts to try to show that our determinism was wrong by somehow questioning determinism itself in physics. One listener says the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that the universe is not deterministic. This conclusion is supported by loads of experimental evidence, and this has implications for free will. That's from uh, from a listener, John, brings that up. So if we are not in a deterministic universe, if there are some quantum events that can uh, that happen that are, are not fully determined, they're completely unpredictable, well, then that introduces indeterminacy. Uh, another uh, a commenter on the blog, uh, Mikolaj, uh, says, concerning the problem of the existence of free will, you may have forgotten about a third option. This option has been proposed by Roger Penrose in his brilliant book, The Emperor's New Mind. Penrose uh, basically argues that in the synaptic cleft, in between where your neurons meet, that it is possible that there are quantum effects that would introduce a, an element of randomness. Right. One thing I think is important to emphasize is that just because something can be, uh, there's some quantum gap or that not everything's predictable doesn't mean then therefore that that person has free will. That's right. randomness. What right. kind, and, and I think for most people who want to believe in free will, they wouldn't be happy with randomness because it's essentially saying that there are no causes whatsoever. What the person with free will probably wants to hear is that the they causes something, and we yeah. already talked about that. Yeah, um, that's the thing. People people think that as soon as you introduce indeterminacy, that you're somehow out of that problem. But as as you just pointed out, randomness does not get you free will. I think the example we used in one of the episodes was if you were debating in your mind over getting a regular Coca-Cola product or a mm -hmm. Diet Coke, what we said is in the deterministic view, um, you're fretting about your figure maybe your sweet tooth, sure. your past experience uh, being on a diet, and, and all that goes in uh, as determinants of, and the total physical state of your mind are all determinants of that choice. Well, that may seem bleak to some, but it is saying that your life experience goes into that. It right. does say that your concerns about your own health go into that. So there is some part of you. Now, on indeterminacy in, in a world where it's not any of that that's going on, it's some random shift at the quantum level. Right. That's not freedom of choice. That's not the ability to, to make free decisions. It's even scarier in, than determinism in my mind because it means your choice was just the product of quantum randomness. Of just, yeah, of chance. Kind of going along those lines, we have um, an email from Christine in Germany, um, and this was one of the, the favorable emails we got, and she says, um, I listened to your podcast while doing the dishes. That's good, getting stuff done. And the stuff with determinism got me kind of depressed. Then it hit me. We change not only with internal and external influences, but with our own experience in reacting and thinking about our reactions. So actually, we are just as active as everything else that influences us. And she puts those in we and us in quotes, because as we talked mm -hmm. about, that's... Uh, you know, what is we? 
Yeah, and I, she's she's noticing uh, that listener, and I've noticed this with several listeners that we had, the, the people who reacted positively mm-hmm. to the episodes, a lot of them spoke of having aha moments or yeah. or this completely blew my mind where where there's suddenly maybe they had never really thought about the implications of determinism mm-hmm. or, or anything before and they and you know suddenly you that perspective shifts and you realize that you are part of a whole matrix of influences you are there there is all this buzzing confusion of of different determinants of behavior that go into things but as as that emailer recognized that that didn't divorce us from responsibility it it actually right. because the way we act and behave and the way we think all matter and they all impact others that it it actually heightens your sense of responsibility it all determines everything else and right. then each action becomes um yeah, more so more the, important. The fact that you are not an uncaused agent of your behavior, that you are the product of of all these influences, doesn't mean that you don't have an influence on that causal chain yourself. Right. We had we had another emailer with a positive comment. He says it was as I was listening to your show that my aha moment came. I flashed back to Carl Sagan's mentioning of our being made of star stuff and something about how humans are a way in which the universe becomes conscious of itself. And realizing this whole determinism thing tied a lot of strings together. Hell, even simple facts like that there are mind-altering substances, there should be a huge red flag to soul theory. Alcohol, Prozac, they alter personality altogether, albeit temporarily. How do you tie that to dualism? Um but yeah, of course, seeing that uh, that that wider vision, I I, I like that. I, I always liked yeah. when Carl Sagan said that we are a way in which the universe becomes conscious of itself. Say it like he does, Jeremy. Say it like he does. We are a way in which the universe can know itself. Yeah. <clears throat> oh. Wow, you haven't done Carl Sagan for a long no, time. No, I oh, haven't. Wow. No. Star stuff. Um. Here's one one listener who didn't really disagree with us but was grappling with what he perceived to be the implications. This is a letter from listener Evan. It was said in the podcast that accepting determinism and reacting to people accordingly is the only way to bring about meaningful change. He said, but how is this even possible? Bringing about change requires that the outcome could have been different, but it couldn't have. Uh, and then he goes beyond that and say, and how can anything be viewed as unique or special? When I look at a piece of art, it is no longer amazing that that person created it. It is not an accomplishment. It had to have happened. I'm stuck looking at each brush stroke, thinking to myself, that's simply a mes- mechanistic gesture. A computer designed to print the same picture could produce the exact same results. He goes on to say, why is the love of my wife or parents anything to be cherished? It was required that they do so. Uh, where is the value in that? And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like uh, this listener is getting more into predeterminism than than just determ- this had to happen. This is something that was going to happen, and and I think that's that's a mistake. Am I am I missing the point here? Um, I I don't know. I. It seemed to me like they their issue was with the fact that we can't take credit for these 
love, for example, or art is yeah. is impoverished of its value. And then the yeah. unalterable. Many people mistake determinism for like, you know, I have no choice. I must go through with this. And that's not what it means. So like, you know, I, I was trained in therapy. I'm a determinist. Now, if I if I believe that things are, are uncontrollable and unalterable, I would never have been a therapist. It's just right. that, that you can substitute right. your, like a B.F. Skinner, you can substitute your contingencies for other contingencies and then alter the behavior that way. It's still determined. Change can occur. You're just uh, you're just changing the forces that then alter it in a different direction. Well, and determinism is is not a coercive thing. We shouldn't get the idea that we may want to do otherwise. Our our desires are in a different direction, but the I the have to do this law like reality of the universe compels us to do these things. In a way, I think all this person needs is is to do a perspective shift. Your love for your wife or your parents. Of course, that is something that it has to do with the neurotransmitters in your brain. Sure. It has to do with, you know, the bonding that came from oxytocin. But that doesn't mean that that experience doesn't matter to you personally. Right. If it still matters to you personally, then I don't see how the fact that it was caused, naturally caused, should take away from the joy of that. Again... If you shift away from this perspective of the me, the I, that has to be responsible for all doing this and see it from that grander universe perspective that we were talking about, then you still can retain the beauty. We are all beings, and we are built in a way that we we form bonds with one another. We we love one another. We've evolved to be that way. Some Something in the direction of ev- evolution favored species that would create strong bonds. And the love you feel towards your wife or your parents is the expression of that. That's how it works out itself in you, in your experience. But there shouldn't be anything threatened by that. Right. And the same thing with art. Um, we don't have to be the the creators. I mean, you get this in art a little bit too with uh, how authentic is, is any one artist or are they sure. just repeating each other as a debate you get. Well, the fact that you could have influences on artwork that doesn't take away from the specialness of that. You know, an artist who is capable of doing those things and and has a fair degree of skill and aesthetic sense, I mean, is still a special thing. It's a rare thing in the universe. The fact that it's caused doesn't take away th- that achievement. It, it just contextualizes it in, in a natural setting. We are all the products of of a lot of influences. And in this one particular artist and in his life experience, this creation came out. It will go and it will influence different art. It will mm-hmm. influence spectators of art. But just because it's it's natural doesn't mean that it isn't beautiful and that it isn't worthy of our celebration. Right. You don't look at a sunset and go... Okay, it looks pretty, but it's actually just the sun refracting through the the air. It it had to be that way, therefore it's not beautiful. It's just a thing that that happened to be that way. I I don't think that's that's the case, and I think that's uh, if if we are natural, we are as natural as the sunset, you know, and uh. love and art and all of that is just as beautiful as uh, a waterfall or the Grand Canyon. I, I love you guys. Oh.
Last week we talked about Charles Darwin and the origin of species with uh, Darwin Day. And we're going to finish up this week with Ben Wicker and a list of 10 books that screwed up the world and how. This uh, We got this off of William Dembski's blog. And it's a good list. Yeah, um, just like that movie review we did probably about a year ago, um, if you want to know some good books to read, just see what are the books on the religious rights hit list. Yeah. Um, so it, oh, banned books are always the best. Yep. Uh, ben Wicker has recently wrote his own book, 10 Books That Screwed Up the World and Five Others That Didn't Help. Wicker. It's a good title. I, I'm sold right there. I always, yeah, I always love these arguments against the effects of the Bible is number yeah. one. Ideas. Let's oh, argue against ideas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Wicker is the senior fellow at St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and is also the author of Mor- Moral Darwinism: How We Became Hedonists. When but, I first saw this list, I thought it, I thought it was tongue in cheek, but yeah, it's. Kind well, there's some ones you might expect. Uh, obviously, um, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf is on the list. Uh, oddly enough, it's number seven. Uh, so it, it's it's not quite near the top. No. It's. Uh, what do I have to do to crack the top dry? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's even one below Margaret Sanger's uh, the the pivot of civilization. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> so no, no, apparently, no. Margaret Sanger. More evil than Hitler. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Wicker. Yeah, yeah. Margaret Sanger, the uh, the feminist and advocate for birth control. Yes. So, uh, so apparently, I guess by pro life logic, she probably con- convinced. Absolutely. She probably created a larger Holocaust than than Hitler. So um, that's why she's making the list. That's absolutely the argument. Um, yeah. But but I mean, even I mean, we're still talking number six. Above that is uh, number three, Charles Darwin's The Descent of Man. Yeah. So apparently this notion that human beings come from monkeys, as which, they say, um, which is not true. No, um, no. But, we have uh, a common ancestor, as my four-year-old with would tell apes, you. We have yes. a common ancestor with, with apes. Uh, number two, John Stuart Mill's Utilitarianism. My gosh, that's number two. Yep. That's the second worst book. Well, number ever. one is John Stuart's America. So that's <sighs> real. No, it's. Uh, yeah, John Stuart Mill's Utilitarianism is uh, is the number two book. Which, if you haven't read it, do. I mean, yeah. it's no, a foundation. All these books, Nietzsche. The communist books, they're all polluting with ideas, about crazy ideas, insanity. Yeah, also yeah. on the list, there's uh, number one is um, Marx and Engels' and Manifesto. And Freud's Future yeah, Illusion. Yeah, we'd expect to see so that, of course. Marx, Freud, Also Egypt. Lenin's uh, uh, The State and Revolution. Number 10, Alf- Alfred Kinsey's Sexual Behavior <laughs> now, in a Human Male. <laughs> uh, that's actually one of the ones I have. Uh, look, that essentially is a book based on statistical tables. Yeah, yeah. So how is, many people are met? Uh, it's you have to then you know be good at reading tables when you want to cross-reference your own age group with probability of having oral so, sex and so, stuff. You know, right. what do you think the rationale is? I haven't read his book. Uh, why he's putting that on the list? Okay, what do you think? All his those things are the implications of them, and some are are damaging to Christian morality. Moral that, that that yeah, and with Kinsey's case, that people are having sex, they're having non-traditional missionary-style sex between a man and a woman. You know. And they don't so want to hear about it. Apparently, just the awareness of that yes. is they view it a as we had a corrosive thing. effects on society because many people said, "Well, geez, I'm not so weird then," or Kinsey right. somehow legitimated that gays and 
and premarital sex well, occurs. And he also in introduced things. the Kinsey scale, which uh, so, is... So here's the thing about that list. It doesn't surprise me so much, but they're all like... It's not that those ideals are assailable. They just don't like the fact that people have access to ideas. Yeah. You know, yes, yeah. Hitler's thing uh, is morally uh, repugnant, but uh, why can't we discuss that idea and then and then debunk it or whatever? Right. Right. Well, he does say that he's not. Uh, he, he Ben Wicker does say that he's not advocating that any of these be censored. Um, he he says it's fine for people to read them and and think critically about them. Oh, well, let's think critically um, but, about the Bible. But I'm, I'm guessing he doesn't really mean think critically, because if you think critically, you're going to hold open the option that some of what they say is correct, and you might actually let your thinking be influenced by them. I, I'm, I'm guessing what he probably means is we should, we should show why these are these books are responsible for every social problem we have, every right. societal ill. Um, right. Well, and then the the five um, screw ups the or the books that didn't help. Did did you see what's on that list? Yeah, Descartes' uh, discourse, discourse on, on method, method is on there. Hobbes, <laughs> Leviathan, Rousseau, uh, discourse. discourse on the origin and foundations of inequality among men. And one of my favorites, The Prince. Yeah, by the author formerly known as Machiavelli. Yes. Yeah, and it's I mean you know the ends justify the means. Uh, our entire I mean, you throw out Hobbes, you throw out Descartes. Yeah, without the prince, what would they do with their Republican politics? Yeah, well, right. <laughs> it just uh, and when and and when you, I was looking at the comments on those, and somebody said, "What about the Bible? That's caused more societal suffering than any than any of those books." And then the apologists come back and said, "Well, as if." murder and things like that didn't come occur before the Bible. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> right, well, then right, that doesn't right. apply to uh, Darwin and Marx and... and or uh, even Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf as well. Right. So if you're going to use the argument that, that murder and, and sin existed before the Bible right. and that the Bible was a kind of an improvement on that, yeah, you get your Inquisition once in a while, but sure. still, the random crusade, but still it's an improvement. Well, doesn't that argument also apply to... Yeah. yeah, there were never shrewd politicians before. <laughs> before Machiavelli the told them how to do it. So, okay, yeah. so books, religion can legitimize murder as much as Mein Kampf legitimizes I, I'm murder. I'm surprised this nut job didn't include the Quran on his his yeah. list of top ten. No yeah. Bible, but the Quran. Because yeah. that uh, Wicker, you better uh, you better redraft your list. Yeah, Dianetics isn't on there. How about I, I want to plug uh, Martin Luther's "On the Jews and Their Lies." That's oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's good reason. Yeah. Be, uh, we didn't learn about that in Catechism. That one actually kind of a precursor to Mein Kampf in mm. a lot of ways. So, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think our listeners, if they want to better themselves over the upcoming year, dedicate yourself to read one of these ten books on Wicker's list of ten books that screwed up the world. And I would also like to issue a challenge to our listeners to come up with your own list. So uh, toss out your submissions. What? Top ten books screwed up the world. Not, of course, that they shouldn't be read, but that uh, are responsible for the most uh, most trouble. Sure. I, I would say um, E.B. White's On Style manual. Um, I, I'm not, <laughs> Strunk and White. Uh, I, uh, I'm not a fan. But So uh, get in those submissions. Find us on Facebook. And if you have the time and compulsion, please write us a nice review on iTunes. Helps bump our ratings. Till next week. 
catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.